Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today my guest is author and broadcaster Claire Mully. Claire's work primarily focuses on female experience during the Second World War and in this episode we chat about two of Claire's books, The Women Who Flew for Hitler, which tells the story of Nazi Germany's only two female test pilots, Hannah Reicht and Melita von Stauffenberg, and The Spy Who Loved, which is a story of Polish-born British special agent Christina Skarbak, aka Christina Granville. Claire is a wonderful storyteller and our chat is full of interesting talking points So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. But before we go to Claire, I want you all to take a moment to listen to another independent podcast which is produced by a colleague of mine, Shashati Bashu, called How To Be. It's a great podcast series and I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I do. Welcome to How To Be with me, Shashati, as your timid presenter, guiding you through life's tricky topics and skills by reading through the best books out there covering topics ranging from mental health and well-being to understanding the world around us better through interviewing authors on the given subject. I've spoken to at least 40 authors from award-winning editor of The Good Immigrant, Nika Schukla, to the year of living Danishly and how to be sad author, Helen Russell, on what it means to be human and about the human condition. Each episode is around 30 minutes long, describing the most important information from at least two to three books hearing a snippet from the author's point of view, a summary of the advice, as well as the community at large, so we get a great overview of each subject, packed full of really important information and life advice. From intersectionality, resilience, motivation, allyship, grief, as well as much, much more, I look forward to hearing from you, and welcome to this journey of learning. Claire, hi, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I've been reading your books over the Christmas period. They were an amazing read. Thank you. I'm very glad they spoke to you. It's amazing history. It is. And this is the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, because, you know, it's funny. Over Christmas, you see a lot of these type of um, war films. They seem to be, you know, very popular at Christmas time. And of all the war films that I watched, only one stood out. And it's the one I traditionally watch actually every year, Where Eagles Dare, where we had strong women in it who were independent and didn't have to rely on the stereotypes of Hollywood. And it's only when I watched Where Eagles Dare, I realized this, is that the two leading ladies in the film are very independent. They don't rely on anything else except their skill as spies and as, as soldiers. And I thought it was great. But have, I, having said that, I probably wouldn't have noticed it had I not read your books. It, it is a fantastic film and it is absolutely true that women do tend to be written out of the history but of course they weren't written out of the war they were serving you know behind the front line in various ways on the home front but also on the front line as well in, in countries across Europe and beyond so yes this is a story we need to know better yeah and I was talking to my daughter who's 10 um, she has her own book book podcast review and um, she I explained the story about Christina Skarbek who we'll go into in a second and that she was Polish and, and believe it or not, she's a huge Marvel fan. And she said to me, God, that sounds like uh, the lady from the Captain America film. And I was kind of yeah. going, 
wow, you know, that's that's a link. You know, it's kind of funny that's a link, but it is great that she's thinking about that, you know, because she said to me that in the film she was kind of frustrated a little bit because she couldn't get involved in the action. And I was thinking, yeah, that's actually right, Peggy from the first Captain America film. So it's great that she's thinking about that as well. She's a little yeah. too young for the book, but um, she's already finding out stuff about her. Yeah, well, there is. Uh, she is mentioned in a children's book because, yeah. among many other things, Christina Scarbeck saved the lives of many of her colleagues in mm -hmm. the field. They were all special agents serving with SOE. And one of those colleagues was a man called Francis Kermertz, who was leading light of SOE in the south of France uh, before D-Day in the south. And his nephew is a man called Michael Morpurgo, the children's author. So, uh, so yeah, I've had a lot of uh, time with Michael. And one of his books is called In the Mouth of the Wolf, which basically means good luck in, in, in the mountains up there. So she should have a look at that. And if she wants a guest, I'd be delighted to do it for her. Yeah, she's actually done a Michael Morpurgo book before, so okay, she's familiar yeah. with him as an author. But yeah, I just think it's great because you read some of those books, you know, Amazing Women in history and stuff like that and it's surprising that Christine's not mentioned there but maybe hopefully the more we do stuff like this the more she'll be included we're getting there we're getting there she's got a good book now today we're going to talk about three women um, we're going to fly through as quick as we can and uh, we'll see if we can get see how far we can get but we've three women in question and the women are of course Christina Scarbeck but she's also known as Christine Granville was her that was her um, one of her code names during the war, which she adopted afterwards because she was born a Polish citizen. Well, she was she wasn't actually because Russia controlled the part of Poland that she lived in. It was annexed at that time. Mm -hmm. But she died a British citizen, and she directly served the British crown. And then we have Melita Schenk Grafen von Stauffenberg. I think I got that right, did I? Very well pronounced. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> she was involved with the Luftwaffe during the war. She was. She was the only female aeronautical engineer. So she developed the dive sites and di dive brakes for the uh, Stuka dive bombers, which, you know, those aircraft that are synonymous with the Blitzkrieg, so important in the early stages of the war for the Nazi regime. And uh, she was one of only two female test pilots as mm -hmm. well for the drive. Hannah Reich, I think I've got that name as well, Reich. Is that how we yep. pronounce your name? Yeah. That's right, Hannah Reich. Yeah, she was the other and a much better known um, female test pilot. She wanted to be the sort of queen bee of the Nazi uh, aviatrix. And she was a fanatical Nazi. And uh, it's, it's this most remarkable story. I mean, she, it was because of Hannah Reich that Melitta has pretty much been written out of the histories because Hannah, Hannah and Melitta, you would think that the only two women to serve as test pilots in the Third Reich would have a sense of sorority, but they absolutely loathed one another because they understood they came from very different places and they actually had very different politics because Melitta, um, Hannah, as I said, was a fanatical Nazi. She's most famous for being the last person to fly into um, Red Army surrounded Berlin. Her aircraft was virtually shot down. She managed a forced crash landing, leaning over the her friend of hers who was at the controls at the time. And uh, she was one of the last people into the bunker to see Hitler. And she flew out last orders, plus some of the last letters from Magda Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels and uh, Eva Braun. And uh, yeah, so she was absolutely committed to the regime, whereas Melitta von Stauffenberg and people who know the von Stauffenberg name may have a clue about this, but she was actually in the German resistance as well. She was the uh, sister-in-law of uh, the famous von Stauffenberg who was yes, involved in the attempt on Hitler's life, which was dramatically yeah. played by Tom Cruise, I think, a couple of years it ago. It was, it was played by Tom Cruise, but unfortunately you don't see Melissa in there. But in fact, Melissa wasn't just the sister-in-law of the man involved, she was involved herself. So mm -hmm. she played a role in the bomb plot. And one of the most extraordinary things I found during my research for that book was her handwritten diary from 1944, which includes the whole period running up to and after the 20th of July. 
bomb plot, um, as, in which I said she played a, an active role. Before we go to Christina, because Christina's story is incredibly interesting and we probably need to devote maybe a series of podcasts to her. I'm surprised no one has done it yet because there's so much to her life. She had so many different blocks in her life that were could be, uh, you know, movies by themselves, really. Well, the um, book is under option, so yeah, fingers crossed. Exactly. Um, so maybe sticking to the two ladies from, from uh, Germany, we had uh, Melita, who was half Jewish, I think, at that, uh, you know, and there was issues around her being accepted within the... the uh, the Third Reich, even though she was incredibly valuable. Yeah, well, I mean, she she wasn't half Jewish, but her father had been born Jewish, but he had converted right. to Protestantism, and she didn't know any of that history. And okay. it, her um, Jewish heritage only became relevant to her in 1937 when the Nuremberg Laws came through, you know, enshrining racial policy and practice into Nazi law, into German law. Um, and so then, then obviously it became hugely important to her, and she was defined i mean she was brought up as a protestant but she was defined as jewish or actually michling in that horrendous racist terminology of that appalling regime um but because she was so skilled she was uniquely valuable to them because of the work she undertook um that they offered her so-called equal to aryan status which she actually refused unless it was given to all of her family so in fact she was working really under duress trying to save the lives well in fact all of her siblings survived the war because of her I mean, she, you can tell by your book that she was under this constant cloud every week, never knowing where somebody was going to come in and take her and her family away. I mean, it must have been a tremendous amount of pressure and stress. Yeah, I mean, extreme stress. I mean, her, her work on its own is incredibly stressful because yeah. she's developing the, the dive sites and the dive breaks and other technology for the Stuka dive bombers. And she is personally undertaking, uh, I think, one of the very few aeronautical engineers who risk their lives every day mm. to do the um, the test dives as well. These are nose dives. It's, it's virtually 80 degrees heading straight towards the Earth at 350 miles an hour. I mean, absolutely extraordinary work, highly likely to black out under the pressure of that. Um, in fact, she did lose consciousness a couple of times, but mm. managed to regain her senses in time to pull back on the stick and the lift the nose of the aircraft and come back around to land. So she's doing this incredibly stressful work and she's working at her drafting table in the evenings. And uh, and on top of all that, she is very aware that the regime knows about her heritage. And, you know, she, this is why she works so hard. She has to make herself irreplaceable mm. to the regime because otherwise she was already a woman. They, they didn't want to let women anywhere near their extremely expensive prototype machines. Mm. Um, and it's only because Hannah and Melissa were both so skilled. They had such... Uh, experience and skills that they, they couldn't really look a gift horse in the house they in the mouth they had to use them and then on top of that of course Melita has this Jewish heritage and yet she is so brilliant at her work they actually end up giving her a whole aeronautical institute and she reports directly to Goering with a number of men reporting to her um, and a huge budget for materials aircraft you know other other um uh, transport and so on so she is an absolutely extraordinary figure so it's remarkable that she's been really dropped from the history books it is very remarkable and i think that probably maybe it is that you know she's tied in with this nazi regime so it is always that negative connotation but as you look deeper into her story you realize that this could have happened to anyone in that time well, well you know i I think that we do need to look, I mean, I wrote this, but I wrote about Christina first, who was an allied heroine, absolutely remarkable woman. But my publisher was quite keen that I looked at other female special agents, but I wanted to take a different angle on the war. You know, we have lots of books about Hitler and the top Nazi set, but if we write about a woman, suddenly, you know, I got people saying, how could you possibly pick this subject? How could you do it? And it's it's this ingrained 
sort of sexism as well. You know, yeah. it's very important for us to understand the motives of women on both sides of the war. Why were they enablers? Why were, you know, both these women are complicit. They're on this spectrum. There are other ends of this spectrum. Hannah is very fervent Nazi, very actively, very keen to support the regime with propaganda, PR, her image, everything. Whereas Melissa is, of course, secretly in the resistance and secretly plotting to assassinate Hitler. I mean, very different. But nevertheless, Melissa's skills are harnessed by the regime and they make good use of them. So, yeah. Talking briefly about Hannah, the impression that I got from her when I read the book was that she was almost um, voluntarily naive. She just didn't seem to accept the reality of what she was being involved in. We call that denial. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so she, I mean, there is there are a few extraordinary scenes. They have a lot of friends and colleagues in common. And one of them, this man, Peter Riedel, who was actually a, a world champion glider before the war. And he is desperately trying to get out of frontline service. So he first goes and asks favours from um, Melita. She can't help him much, but they have a bit of a chat. And then he goes to Hannah Wright and see if she can pull a few strings for him. He says he's just come from Melita. And and he is bringing, he had been the air attaché at the uh, Nazi German embassy in Sweden. And he has got information that have been smuggled to him by the resistance, which are copies of photographs from one of the extermination camps and um, photostats of direct orders um, from the, the Nazi leadership. So it's very, you know, this is very uh, complicit material. This is evidence of knowledge of the Holocaust of, as it being a Nazi policy. And he's absolutely appalled. So he shows it. Uh, he shows it to Hannah and he says, you know, take it to your friends, take it to Himmler and ask him about it, challenge him then. And uh, Hannah does. She goes to Himmler and within five minutes, I mean, Himmler, I think if anyone else had gone to him and challenged him with material like that, they would have been executed yeah, or just got or thrown out of the window. But she was so valuable to their regime and she by then was a very big name, a celebrity, um, very important for German um, citizens' morale and all that. And so he he just said to her, do you believe this? And she said, of course not. You know, this is appalling that people will read it wrongly. And he, within five minutes, they're talking about his Christmas crockery that he's just ordered, you know, literally his service, dinner table service, actually, which had been made by um, forced labourers in a camp, in fact. She didn't know that. But, you know, she's so willing to look the other way. She's very happy to immediately change the subject. Um, and that's all the reassurance she needed. And after the war, many years later, actually, in uh, one of the last interviews with Hannah Wright, I think it was a Canadian, might have been an American journalist, and they say, you know, gone on the record a lot. Um, she's put herself up as a leader for, for young people. Um, she had, uh, you know, as a glider expert, she was, you know, well-known. She'd been a guest at the White House, guest Nehru. She worked with Kwame Nkrumah. She's this international figure. And uh, he said, but you've never really gone on the record about your feelings for the Nazi regime. And he said, not knowing the story that I've just told, that she had evidence during the war, he said, you, you didn't know anything about it. We know that. But um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to say, do you have any regrets? Do you feel any guilt? And she said, you know, I, I do. Um, I do have regrets. I do feel guilty about the war. I feel guilty that we lost. So, I mean, she is, at that point, in the late 1970s, there is absolutely no excuse for not knowing what went on. And she is still in denial and still committed to that appalling criminal regime. It's amazing because there's so many of them were like that. And I think it was probably a sense of insecurity, isn't it? That their entire bubble had just burst and they had nothing because what they had was so strange and so grotesque that once they stepped into a normal life, they just couldn't accept it, really, including Hannah. 
they couldn't accept their criminal liability, the fact that they had dedicated themselves. I mean, Hannah was all very much supporting, mm. you know, her honour, her sense of duty was all bound up with support for a criminal regime. And I think that's partly why she tried so hard to stop Melita von Stauffenberg's story coming out, because there were these two pilots, they're bound to be compared. And that's what my book looks at, the two of them together, because the sum of the parts is so much greater um, than each of them individually. Because Hannah, if she... Um, if Melissa becomes the hero of the story, and she is someone who tried to uh, supported an assassination attempt, the most famous assassination attempt on Hitler, if she suddenly becomes a hero, that meant Hannah would have to totally reevaluate herself. You know, she's on the other side of the war, yeah, and that she cannot allow. And here's the sad thing: when you look at Hannah's record, all of the you know the achievements that she had in peacetime. I mean, she would have been outstanding. She would have been right up there with all of the great women aviators of the 30s and 40s. Which she was. She was completely outstanding. I mean, she was um, beyond them. She set uh, gliding records that people haven't beaten. Um, she was the first woman in the world to fly a helicopter, the first person in the world to fly a helicopter inside a building in 1938 in the Deutschland, which was built for the Olympics. You know, she flew uh, the, the, the comet ME163, which was one of the Death first trap. rockets yeah, to go into production. She tested the V1 um, buzz bomb, which basically a prototype cruise missile. I mean, she is absolutely extraordinary. Her physical courage was incredible. Her skills as a pilot were brilliant. That doesn't mean she can't have been deeply racist, fanatical Nazi. She was. You know, we need to be able to accept the fact that people can be very skilled. A lot of people said she was very beautiful. I mean, it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? But she's also, you can be all that, and it's, you know, also possible to be a fanatical Nazi. The one thing about Melissa was that she had a certain um, acceptance of doom in her life. She kind of accepted that whatever happens at the end of the war, her life is never going to be the same again. So she kind of lived for that moment didn't she I was when I was reading the book I felt that a lot when I was reading about her story that she was living every day as long as she could yeah I mean Melissa has a completely different perspective right from early on I mean she's slightly older than Hannah she remembers the first world war um she uh, she sees the rise of Hitler with trepidation she's very critical you know where Hannah sees brass bands and bunting on the streets Melissa very much sees um liberals and church leaders, Protestant leaders of her own faith being taken away for, for even the slightest indiscretion or, or comment against the regime's principles or policies. And so she is immediately very critical. And of course, as she begins to find out what is happening to the Jewish population of Germany and of other European nations, and she, I don't know how much she knew, but um, as she begins to uh, gain some sense of what is going on there, she decides that Actually, it's not enough to just take equal for Aryan status for her family and six, six people. She has to put her life on the line to try and to end this regime. And that's why she becomes involved in the bomb plot, the famous bomb plot of 20th of July, 1944. So, and after that, of course, I thought that's when her story would end. Exactly, yeah. She is, she's rounded up and taken to prison. I just thought, oh God, that's awful. But no, I mean, she, she has this amazing second bash at it. She gets out, she gets going. And, and that story is amazing as well. And she keeps her family alive in so many ways. You know, yeah. she's constantly harassing the people who are kind of keeping them in custody, making sure that she's around and making them feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, she is. And, and also just the impractical stuff. So, you know, the day she gets out of prison, she goes sent back to the airfield to carry on her testing work. But she doesn't do that. She gets a shotgun. She starts shooting rabbits on the airfield. She gathers them up. She gets sheets. She gets dried biscuits. Anything she can. She flies over to Buchenwald and she sets down and hands over everything she can. So she is this, um, I mean, 
some of the prisoners there, they called her the angel of the camps. It's an extraordinary sort of second uh, career, really, for, I mean, not career, vocation. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, incredible. When you were writing that book, I I would have found it very difficult myself to try and balance it. Did you, did you have trouble trying to balance each of the story and give it, you know, give both of them enough time? Well, no, I, I mean, it wasn't a huge problem because both of their stories are so incredible and remarkable. It's really, how am I going to fit this all into one book? You know, and I did, I did think from the start, I knew I wanted to write a book about both of them because they they knew each other. There's an amazing scene where they're having a big argument and Hannah basically accuses Melissa of making a sexual pass. At her. I mean, they, they have this extraordinary, difficult relationship of, of real passionate hatred, really. Um, and beyond that as well, just the fact that it shows to an extent what options there were for women. I mean, not many. Um, and, and and different kinds of courage these women had. They both had real physical courage in their in their work, but only one of them had moral courage. You know, there's lots to compare and contrast there. So the problem was really, um, well, partly sort of fitting it all in, but also not I really wanted people, you know, these women speak for themselves. It's very clear from their actions, their decisions, what they they did, what their positions were. And I don't want to hit people around the head with moral judgment. I think it's very clear the women can speak for themselves. So I think what you did really well was that it had a level of facts, right? So it never went too deep. You know, it never became opinionated. And I think it did exactly what you wanted it to do. I made up my mind who was my favourite from reading that book. You know, I, I didn't get it from, didn't get that impression from yourself. And I thought that was really great the way you managed to do that. Thank you. I'm very pleased to hear it. I mean, one, yes, I was, I mean, it is concerning because I obviously, um, Hannah Wright is a loathsome person, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have positive qualities. Um, after I wrote the book, some people said to me, oh, isn't that fantastic? You've written a book about good Nazis. And I was like, no, that's not, there aren't Read good the Nazis. book. Yeah. And somebody else said, yeah, um, oh, wonderful, you know, strong women, difficult women. And I find all that a bit tricky. It's it's very reductive. You end up talking about caricatures. And these are these are real women struggling to survive, making very difficult choices under the perverting conditions of war and dictatorship and limited um, limited press information and all the rest of it. And and yet they make very different decisions and take very different actions. And I think that is much more important than just trying to present a a very easy black and white story. I agree 100% because, you know, people are people and people are different and we all have levels of resistance, you know, and Hannah's and uh, Melita's levels were very different. They had different um, principles and those principles developed probably at a very early point. But, you know, they are still um, creations of a system Mm. and a system is probably bigger even than the Nazi regime. It's how women are treated in general, I think. Well, it's many things going in there. So, yes, I mean, there is sexism here. There is the war. There is dictatorship. There is the Nazi, um, the policies and practices of that regime. All of those things coming together. So, yes. Uh, and and what's really interesting as well is the, the sort of meta story or the post story of this is, you know, during my research, I kept coming across the sexism. I kept coming across uh, different ways that people had archived the material. For example, I met um, a very, very kind of Melita's nieces and nephews. A few of them agreed to meet me. I, I met them in separate meetings, but one with um, one, some of her wonderful family still had a lot of her letters and papers and photographs and so on. And they very kindly agreed. I, I went over to meet them. And um, I was saying, you know, 
all Klaus von Stampenbo's papers are now in the military archive or in their national archive in Munich in Germany, the Deutsche Museum archive. Um, and none of Melissa's papers are in there. There's some at her university, but not very many, but they're all with the family. And that's because they were kind of sent back because she was a woman and therefore it's domestic. And, you know, so, so women are written out of the story. That's why you don't see them in the war films that you started off. Yeah. It's not just because when we write about them now, um, we tend to, you know, still women are given sort of supporting type roles or love interests. It's also because even at the archival stage, the information isn't put into the National Archive, it's sent back to the families. So you have to really, you know, be aware of this and dig a bit deeper. Who has fascinated you the most, Hannah or Melita, when you were doing the research? Well, I mean, it's Melita. Uh, Hannah, I mean, she is absolutely fascinating character. Um, she, she, her background, her, her, she has this great tragedy in there. There's obviously huge drama. She's this extraordinary figure. And yet I interviewed, you know, there were veterans. Um, I, I managed to interview a couple of people on the other side of the war previously. And, uh, you know, one of them there's a, uh, talks about her being terrified of a mouse and, and has this mm. wonderful anecdote. Yeah. But, you know, so that she's she is a rich, full character. Mm-hmm. Um, but Melita is incredibly conflicted. And I think that is always something that gives us you know, real interest and intrigue because she is, she's she's a patriot. They're both great patriots. They both have a strong sense of honour and duty, but their understanding of what honour is, is very different. So um, Melita is hugely patriotic towards her country. She has these old Juncker values. She likes the culture of it. She's immersed in all of this. Um, and she sees Hitler as an upstart, you know, bourgeois, petty bourgeois. Uh, and then she sees him as something much worse than that. So she is. She has this conflict. How can you be a patriot, supporting your country at war, and yet opposed to the regime? And this is, you know, a fascinating position for anyone to be. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I think your book is essential reading if you want to understand how people can be brought into a, as I said, a bubble, and you know they cannot operate freely. So they try and operate the best way they can, and some of them become committed to the cause, and then some kind of let on that they're committed to a cause and have a much bigger agenda. So I can only credit you on that one. It was really brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very pleased. I think we move on to Christine now because um, we, I, I, I said I don't want to fly through Christine's story because it's incredible. Christina Skarbak, she was originally from Poland and again, very much a patriot, you know, in a real sense, not the kind of sense that they throw around today on TV. She was an amazing woman, wasn't she? She was absolutely extraordinary. So this is a separate book, I should yeah. say. So, um, Hannah and Melissa's story is told in my book, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. Um, but before that, I wrote a, a biography of one woman, Kristina Skarbek, uh, a Polish countess, she was born, um, who became Christine Granville, the first woman to serve Britain as a special agent in the Second World War and the longest serving special agent directly for Britain, um, male or female, during that conflict. And yeah, the book is called The Spy Who Loved because... She was a very passionate woman. She loved adventure and adrenaline and, in a sense, the war, you know, perverting the social norms gave her an opportunity to serve rather than to, you know, dance polonaises at balls or hide behind a fan. That's not what she was interested in life, so it gave her the chance to act centre stage. Um, She loved men. She had two husbands. She had many lovers. Um, But above all, she loved freedom and independence, both for the country of her birth, Poland, for her adopted country, which was Britain, and also freedom for herself as well. She was in many ways a woman ahead of her time. I was reading the book and I was just kind of, my eyes were going open every couple of few minutes um, because the thing is, she just had this magic about her that just seemed to attract men. They just seemed to just kind of be so enamored with her. And I thought it was brilliant. 
you know, rather than this usual stuff where she was struggling all the time to convince people to do things. And it was great to read a story where a woman was powerful, but she was also, you know, quite cunning and she wasn't evil you know she was just very exactly she was just very smart and just used her talents. not evil and female yeah, it's, yeah. It's possible. um yes so yeah she, i mean she she did have this incredible sex appeal apparently i mean she was a beauty uh she was a ski resort beauty queen she came uh, she was a runner-up in the first ever miss Poland in 1930 as well um but i think all too often when we talk about women in the resistance we tend to think of them in these sort of romantic terms you know she was so beautiful she was so attractive um, and, and often we say, you know, she was very courageous um, or these women had great courage, which is true. And we should recognize that. And often, we, you know, it, it seems we love a story where they pay the ultimate price. You know, they make the final sacrifice and lose their lives. But I, I think we should absolutely honor and remember women who, who did that. But also we need to remember, we need to be better about remembering these women's achievements. So, yes, Christina was very attractive. And she had a lot of personal power and authority and she was very courageous, but she also achieved a hell of a lot. And I think it's really important. You know, what Christina's story enables us to do is to remember that you can be a beautiful female special agent. And a lot of them were beautiful. You know, a lot of them were, were there was quite a few that were grandmothers. There were a lot, you know, one of them went off. I remember the pilot um, in the aircraft said, well, she's plain as a vicar's wife or something. Well, maybe that can be quite useful as well. It's not necessary to be beautiful. Christina was quite beautiful, but she was also bloody effective at her job. So her achievements are absolutely extraordinary. And of course, you know, Churchill at one point called her his favourite spy and she got the E and the uh, George Medal and the Croix de Guerre from the French as well, just as a reflection of the significance of her achievements in the war. So I'm just going to run through some of her early career. She spent a number of time in Poland and Hungary and her job there was to actually get people over the border, whether it be downed pilots uh, from the British or whether it be Russian or Polish uh, officers or troops trying to escape the Russians or Germans or generally people trying to get through. I mean, this was an incredibly dangerous um, effort because I actually, my wife is Polish and I've climbed those mountains in the summer and they're pretty hard to do. So I've gone from Slovenia, Poland over into Slovenia and it's not easy, you know, and the fact that she had to do this on a regular basis with little or no technology and terrible weather, this is just an incredible feat. And the first time she crossed, it's really early on in the war. I mean, she was in situ. She was sent out to Budapest. The British uh, um, special services sent, I mean, this is before SOE was set up. So she was sent out basically by MI6 um, to Budapest uh, under the guise of being a French journalist with lots of journalists. And uh, that country was still neutral at that point in the war. So she was there before Christmas 1939. And early the next year, she is going out in the midwinter over those high Tatra mountains, crossing borders. And even, as you say, that journey on its own is incredibly perilous. So it was incredibly cold that winter and uh, apparently conditions were minus 40 degrees, minus 40. Unbelievable. I mean, I was told that's enough to freeze the birds to death on the branches of the trees, which does sound a little bit romantic to me. But uh, I know that she passed the bodies of two people who had been going the other way, trying to get out of occupied territory and they, they hadn't been shot. They just frozen to death in the mountains so that's the conditions just to get in to work to do her job the couple i think it was young lady and a young guy that stuck with her for quite a while didn't it yeah well i mean she she stayed there for a while she made a a cross out of polish pine and you know she said some prayers there but of course she had to go on and do her job but i think that was her first real um experience direct experience of the horrors of the war but of course there was much more to come now she teamed up with a with a man who would stay with her throughout her entire life another great character wasn't uh, it says i've met, i'm gonna not gonna attempt his name maybe you can help me out andre andre kaveski yeah. yeah 
Yeah, absolutely extraordinary figure. He um, he had joined something called Poland's Black Brigade, which was um, the Poland's mechanized division. So they're basically their tanks and so their mechanized uh, units, and they were called the Black Brigade because they had black leather jackets. And but he hadn't joined for the jacket. He had joined because he um, before the war he was an aristocrat as well, and they had known each other in childhood actually. And uh, he had had a hunting party on his family estate before the war. And one of his friends who came from the city hadn't known how to handle a gun and had accidentally set it off and shot one of Andrew's legs off. He lost it below the knee. So this is a man with just one uh, one um, leg and a, and a prosthetic, like two legs, but one was prosthetic. And uh, But he had altered his um, his vehicle so he could still serve in the Black Brigade. Um, and there's some incredible stories about him at one point you know that uh, there was a huge explosion and when the dust and dirt this is in september 39 uh, he's serving against the nazi panzer divisions that rolling in across the polish plains in that annoyingly um, hospitable summer for the german invasion and um th- there is an explosion and when the cloud of dirt has dissipated the germans had actually pulled back on that occasion but andrew was trapped underneath his his vehicle which was overturned and one of his unit went running up saying somebody get a doctor get a medic it's andrew he's he's trapped and he just laconically called out no i don't need a doctor you blithering idiot i just need a blacksmith because he was just pinned down by the part of his false leg so i mean that gives you an indication of his character yeah so the two of them worked together andrew set up one of the first escape routes out of occupied poland and that part of europe and that brought out lots of people from the internment camps, but also, as you say, down pilots and, mm-hmm. and Polish pilots as well. And um, I'm sure people are beginning to know now that in the Battle of Britain, the squadron that got the highest number of kills, even though they only joined the Battle of Britain halfway through, was Squadron 303, the Polish squadron, because those were the pilots that had the most combat experience and they had a different uh, approach. So getting out those pilots in itself was a very significant contribution to the Allied victory impact. Um, but yeah, that's just the start. That's the precursor to her real work. Yeah, she eventually, of course, she did a number of, there was kind of blocks within her life. She was based in Cairo for quite a while with Andre. And that was a kind of a down period for her. It was quite frustrating because she wasn't getting much work. Yeah, she always wanted to do more. She was, she served in three different theatres of the war. So she first in um, Eastern Europe, so Poland, Hungary and so on. Then uh, eventually she was arrested a couple of times, had to get out, managed to get out. And it's an incredible journey. It's a chapter of its own in the book. You get this in an old Opel Olympia stolen from the Gestapo. They make their way across Europe just before these countries fall, um, sometimes weeks, sometimes days after they get out. Uh, and eventually they get to the safety of the British base in Cairo, where she is initially put completely on ice and she's horrified by this treatment. Um, but it turns out the British are reporting, uh, investigating reports that she's a German double agent. Um, lots of reasons for this, which, of course, I explore in the book. But um, one of the ones I like best was someone wrote in the margins, it seems the only possible reason for why she's still alive, which is actually quite understandable at that point. But anyhow, yes, yeah, so she spent some time in Cairo and then she is highly trained in North Africa and prepared to be parachuted back behind enemy territory, which she did in July 44. So, yeah, she didn't stop. And she went to France then. And this is where her career really took a turn, wasn't it? For the, you know. Yes, that's where she undertook the achievements that really make her legendary within the British Special Forces. So, yes. Yeah, probably the two big ones was she, she helped three of her colleagues escape. Um, we won't go into the story too much because it's really exciting. And as I was reading it in your book, I was flying through the pages, you know, speed reading <laughs> to try and find out whether the guys get out or not. But anyway, and then there's another amazing story where I think we can put a bit of context that at that time, there were a number of platoons that were made up completely of Polish soldiers in, in the German army, the Wehrmacht. And she kind of convinced an entire platoon yeah. or an entire garrison, wasn't it, to, to yeah, uh, I mean, surrender? I think her, 
her her three biggest achievements, I think, were one, early on, she brings out information on Operation Barbarossa, which hits Churchill's desk and changes Allied policy. And then in France, the two big things was that she made the first contact between the French resistance on one side of the Alps and the Italian partisans on the other side of the Alps, which becomes very important. So that's a huge achievement. And then, yeah, she rescues, the, uh, she has this experience with the guys being arrested she she leaps into action absolutely amazing story but also yes this story so there is this um garrison on a strategic pass the col de l'arche pass in the alps um which is manned mainly by polish conscripts um because of course poland had been for a long part of their history divided into three annex up between um you know russia austria hungary and germany and lots of um Poles from Silesia had some German heritage, but also there were conscripts that were really recruited, you know, basis of threats to their families and so on. And they their loyalties were divided, to say the least. And so they, I mean, they weren't entirely Polish because there was always fully German leadership, so the garrison commanders and senior officers and so on. But there was, in this particular garrison, Christina learned that there was a large number of Polish conscripts. So she went up climbed up the mountain and instead usually she dressed as a peasant woman hiding her you know her, her in case because they often came across um, the troops coming through because it's in the border area so it's a um, very much guarded area um, but she went up with a white and red scarf tied in her hair which are the colors of Poland so it was immediately obvious that this was political um, and the Poles were intrigued and, and didn't shoot at her as she came up with her megaphone and began talking with them and eventually um, she went right up onto the platform and spoke to them individually for some hours and persuaded them that at the right moment, uh, that at a specific time, one week later, they would defect and they would take, you know, the pins, breech blocks out of the, any big guns, they would disable big uh, armaments and bring anything portable down with them to join the French resistance. And that is exactly what they did. So she single-handedly secured the defection of an entire Nazi German garrison on the strategic pass in the Alps. I mean, amazing. Post-war, she had a problem that a lot of people had in that, um, particular women in that they felt that they were just forced okay the war's over now it's time to just go and do your own thing off you go bye bye no support no nothing and this was very difficult for her because she had trouble kind of settling back into what we you know describe as normal life well i think i think many people who'd served yeah. had real yeah. issues uh, real difficulties settling back in i mean if you look at the i think alan Olfort, among other people has done some studies into this and if you look at crime rates you know the murder rate shoots up there's a, a there's a, a large suicide rate as well in the post-war years for former combatants who couldn't readjust. And Christina, yes, she finds it difficult to adjust. But I mean, she's not adjust back. I mean, she's now living in, in Britain. She had to fight to live in Britain um, because the British let her high and dry in Cairo at the end of the war. She was back in Egypt and uh, didn't give her citizenship. But she couldn't go back to Poland because that was now you know, being run by a Soviet-backed communist regime who would have rounded her up and shot her. And in fact, the British had traded her name for the name of an NKVD agent earlier on in the war. So they should have known she couldn't have gone back. She'd have been uh, disappeared immediately. Um, so she eventually won the right. She actually refused to accept her honours from the British government, who she had served loyally and directly for six years, uh, unless she was given British citizenship. And the you know, not Britain's greatest moment, but we were shamed into giving that to her. So she, she came to us. She had to then adjust to living in London. Um, and of course, she faced all these other prejudices. I mean, she was she was a former combatant, so she probably had a degree of uh, stress and difficulty in changing your adrenaline rate and all the rest of it. But also she was Polish. And of course, in 
1940, in the middle of the war, the Poles were these heroes. They were seen very romantically, the, the Polish pilots in particular. By the end of the war, there's graffiti all over the shop saying, Poles go home. You know, there wasn't an understanding of why they couldn't return to, to Poland. And I think that's still not really understood. So she was Polish. Um, she was a former combatant. And of course, she was a woman. And while all of the men, there's this list of Polish men that, with whom many of whom she had worked, including Andre, and they were all redeployed. You know, they were put into the British Allied Occupation Zone of Germany. Andrew worked in agriculture there. You know, there, there was lots of roles. Well, there weren't that many roles, but there were roles. But she wasn't offered those. She was offered a little bit of secretarial clerical work, which she had no skills for, totally unsuited. You know, her experience was in a completely different field. And the files... I mean, I, I, was, I got a lot out under the Freedom of Information Act because she served Britain, so it's in the British National Archives. And um, it, it's incredibly sexist. They refer to her as a little girl. Some young man has written, well, some man has written. Um, I don't know if if all these reports can be correct. It looks like she made them up. Um, it, it's absolutely extraordinary. So she was really left high and dry. But I have to say, she did find it difficult. I'm sure there are, there are mixed reports. Some people, some of them, People I spoke to said that she was at times depressed after the war. But I also spoke to women who'd been good friends with her in London after the war who said she was always up for a laugh. You know, yes, she had ups and downs, but she was a person who made things happen. She was a fighter. And in fact, we see that, you know, she, she fought and got British citizenship and she got a series of quite low paid jobs. But she got jobs, so she ended up working on the cruise ships. And, of course, at the start of the war, she'd come back from Southern Africa with her second husband, who was a diplomat, first class on a cruise ship. At the end of the war, after the war, she's serving as a bathroom stewardess, you know, on a cruise ship. So crap job, fine. But it enabled her to travel. So she was traveling the world. It gave her independence still. She was earning her own livelihood. You know, she wasn't dependent on anyone and she was still, you know, the world was her oyster. So actually, I think it can be overstated how much she struggled after the war. Yeah. Do you think she might have suffered with some kind of PTSD? Um, I mean, I'm sure it's probably possible. But I'm, when I read through her book and saw the amount of stress levels that she was experiencing and the amount of atrocities that she had to um, view and come across, I mean, I don't know how it wouldn't be a case that she would have suffered something like that. Well, look, we didn't have that diagnosis, I think, PTSD at that point. So it's quite anachronistic. And we don't have any medical assessments of her um, for, for any of that. So, I, you know, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, yes, it is possible. Uh, a lot of people did. She would have reason for that. On the other hand, she seems to be functioning extremely well. So, you know, let's not read things into it. I think yeah. that's important. Um, but yes, keep an open mind. Definitely more strength than I probably would have had. I mean, it's incredible. I just could not get over how each situation made her stronger. Yeah, I mean, well, most of us aren't at Christine's level. I mean, it's not you. It's I'm certainly not at that level. Yeah. Um, she was she was an exceptional special agent, and her achievements speak for themselves. But her her character is a fascinating and extraordinary one. So yes, nobody's victim. What legacy do these three women have in sense of what can we learn from you know women in war overall? Well. Yes, I mean, a legacy, it means different things to different people, doesn't it? Mm. I suppose all of them remind us that women can be, well, in different ways. I mean, Hannah reminds us that women can be beautiful, talented, brilliantly skilled and deeply racist um, and, and able to deny their deny themselves reality. You know, that's that's something worth considering. Um, they, Melita and Hannah both show us to degree, but particularly Melita also. I mean, if there's one simple thing to take from that book, it's this idea of the absolute hypocrisy of the Nazi regime that said there was there's only you know one place for women, one sphere for women 
pressure cooker kinder, the church, the kitchen and, and childcare. Um, and there's no place at all, of course, for Jewish people in the Third Reich. And yet when it suited them, they gave their highest honours to two women in what they considered to be the very masculine field of flight, one of whom they themselves defined as being Jewish. So that is a pretty impressive thing for them to expose. Um, Hannah, uh, sorry, Christina, very different. I mean, because her, you know, her legacy is partly the freedom of Europe today. You know, she made a very significant contribution to the Allied war effort, and the importance of that should not be underwritten. Um, in, in a smaller way, I'm delighted that since my book came out, I mean, I ran a campaign to get her a blue plaque, an English heritage blue plaque. So we're beginning to get different ways of remembering her, putting her story back into history. Um, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, she was Polish. And, you know, the, the most one of the most effective female special agents, the longest serving woman to serve Britain in the Second World War as a special agent was a Polish born woman. So often we hear this thing about, you know, Britain stood alone. Not from the very start of the war did we stand alone. We had we had the forces from the empire. We had our allies. You know, Poland was the first of the allies. And um, that significant contribution needs to be better remembered, I think. Um, and also she had Jewish heritage. You know, it, she can... The thing about Christina is that she doesn't fit into any box. You know, she was too too feminine to be a, a male soldier, but she was too military effective to be a secretary or take a traditional female role. You know, she she was too Polish to be ever accepted as fully British, but she was too, you know, too much for the British for the Soviets to accept her as a, a pole that they could live with. And um, and after the you know Camp David bomb in the 1940s, the Jewish heritage of her also meant that the British distrusted her because of course there was anti-Semitism here as well unfortunately so so yes I love the fact one thing that she highlights is the diversity almost in one person um of of the effort and of the the people that contributed to the to the war so yeah I'm delighted she's now got an English heritage blue plaque um I've got her her portrait's been accepted for the National Portrait Gallery now uh, which is just reopening so hopefully people can go and see it and uh, there's a bronze bust of her now, which people can go and see in London. And well, books under option for a film, so I'm hoping that we'll uh, she'll, her story will get even more told. The legacy for me of these three women is: do not underestimate the value and importance of women. That's that's how I read it. You know that this was this was you know the case during the war, and thank, thankfully it's begun it's begun to change now at this point. So you know for me that was it. Like they have such adaptability, more adaptability in some ways than we probably would care to have given them credit for. Oh, that is absolutely true. Let's not underestimate women, full stop. New projects. Have you anything coming up in the moment? Any new books on the line or anything like that? Uh, I have. I'm doing a little bit of TV, do lots of reviews. But I have got a new book on the go. Um, working title is Agent Zo, Woman on a Mission. So, yes, you can uh, look forward to that one in a couple yeah. of years, I think. So, yeah. That sounds very interesting now, you know, I'm getting into these Another books now. remarkable figure. Grant. Yeah. And can I ask you as well, I always ask this of all of my guests, um, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Oh gosh, okay. Reading about 5,000 books. I'm just reading, just about to start this one. Yeah. Levy's Get the Children Out, Unsung Heroes of the Kinder Transport, because I'm interviewing him for Jewish Book Week coming up. Um, so that's a story about the Kinder Transport. Um, and I am, what am I watching? I'm just about to finish Slow Horses, season two. Absolutely fantastic. I love it. Uh, I love Sherwood on TV recently. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, what do I listen to? Mainly podcasts. Um, That's good. Rest is politics, rest is history, lots of history podcasts. Um, the wonderful, comfortable spot podcast as Thank well, you so of course. Much. <laughs> uh, and I'm listening, I listen to audiobooks as well when I'm walking the dog. 
and uh, driving around. So I'm just re- listening, reading Catherine Rondell's superb biography of John Donne, the, the metaphysical poet, um, called Super Infinite. Absolutely brilliant. So I recommend that one. Yeah. So you probably, probably describe yourself as a speed reader then. <laughs> uh well no i just do a lot of a lot of do a lot of walking a lot yeah. of driving my children around as well so yeah. on the way back i'm listening to a to a book yeah I love yeah it. i i don't i'm not really one for the um i've never really investigated how i would deal with the uh, audio books i must try out a couple you know because um i've just so many books like i've got about 40 or 50 books on the shelf which i've promised to read in the next six yeah, months yeah. so i mean i got three three of your books over christmas so i didn't do too badly you know that's very good Thank brilliant you. can you tell me um what's the, the name of the books again and you know who where we can get them oh okay so my books are uh well the the two we talked about today one is called the women who flew for hitler um and it's available they're both out in paperback now and it's available everywhere um get it from your local independent bookshop ideally but obviously it is on amazon etc as well um and the spy who loved about christine um again in paperback and out everywhere so yeah please do please do have a look people thank Um, you before i let you go i want you to tell me you had a third book which i read but we just knew we couldn't fit it all in but that was a brilliant book as well Thank you. I'm glad you like that. Yeah, that's called The Women, uh, The Woman Who Saved the Children. That's my first book. And it's about, it's a biography of a woman called Eggentine Jeb, this incredible, compassionate, compassionate, revolutionary woman who, um, uh, she's an Edwardian woman who founded Save the Children, the charity, and also went on to come up with and promote the uh, the concept of children having human rights because before she came along children were literally the property of the parents or the wards of the state if they were orphans um, and didn't have human rights um, and her, her work is absolutely extraordinary and one of the many things I love I mean she's out there getting arrested going to war zone she's yeah. in this incredible unheard of woman um, one of the many things I loved about her is that she didn't she didn't actually like children very much didn't have any of her <laughs> the little which was fantastic so, because she mother. couldn't get emotional in it really you know, no, I mean, well, she was. She, she was, was of course, but you know what I mean. She was. About, yeah. It wasn't sentimental, and no, it wasn't maternal. exactly. I think it's you know, I think it's often people believe or have come to me and said, "Oh, but she was very maternal, wasn't she?" I said, "No, no, she really wasn't. She was a humanitarian, though. That's that's possible." She was a woman way ahead of her time. That's all I can say about the book. I mean, again, we was, we could yeah. do a whole podcast episode that maybe come back in a few months and try that one, but what i what i really got around to was saying imagine we had 10 of these women what we could have achieved you know maybe 50 years later earlier sorry than what we did you know with various charities and organizations that were set up yeah i mean i mean she has had massive impact her yeah. legacy on the world is huge it's, it's um, enormous, and yet yeah. she, i'm sure if uh, well she's hardly unknown which is something i'm also trying to change obviously um but you know i do think there are there aren't just these four women there are lots of others um, it's just that we haven't written about them and we don't know them so that's part of the thing i'm doing is trying to mine that rich seam of untold story me too <laughs> so i'll have loads more in the next couple of months coming through claire thanks so much for joining me today can you give me one last thing you have a website or where can people find you yes. twitter yeah so it's claremully.com so um i don't have an i in my name so it's c-l-a-r-e-m-u-l-l-e-y mm-hmm. so yeah claremully.com but yes i'm on i'm on everything twitter instagram uh facebook i'm just trying to do mastodon but I'm not doing very well at it so um yes i'm on all those things as well so yeah Great. please do up and say hello Claire, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you to everybody out there for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. I know we had a good chat about some really interesting people. So take care, all. Bye-bye.